0: This week on Behind the Lens, we'll look at the major races and outcomes from Tuesday's election with our panel of reporters. And later, back in the spring, just days before the coronavirus hit Louisiana, Mayor LaToya Cantrell signed a document to continue a century-old trust agreement that had it been allowed to terminate as stipulated, would have given the city full ownership of over 50,000 acres of donated land that generates millions of dollars per year, primarily due to land and oil and gas leases on the property. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter, Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael.
1: Morning.
0: Criminal justice reporter, Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick.
1: Hello.
0: Education reporter, Marta Jusen is here. Hello, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Freelance reporter, Madeline Arufo joining us. Hi, Madeline. Hi. And Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. Good morning, Charles. Morning. We just finished an election. Some cases we're not done yet. Nick, the big race for the week was the DA race. Tell us what happened. What were the results?
2: So Kiva Landrum and Jason Williams will be going to a runoff election. Uh, Kiva Landrum is a former criminal district court judge. um, And Jason Williams is the president of the city council um, and a defense attorney. Um, So they they both advanced the runoff, Uh, Kiva Landrum came in first with about 35% of the vote, and Jason Williams just narrowly defeated another criminal district court judge, uh, Arthur Hunter. Um, Jason Williams got about 29% of the vote, and Arthur Hunter got 28
0: And Jason Williams was running as the clear progressive choice out of the field. Yeah, I would I would say that that's probably the case. He, he's
2: wanted to present himself as, as the as the reformer, although all the candidates to varying degrees have said that they they want to reform uh, the office. Um, but yes, Jason, Jason Williams has been a defense attorney for a long time, um, and Kiva Landrum, you know, was a prosecutor and actually uh, ran the, the DA's office for a brief period um, in 2007 when when uh, Eddie Jordan stepped down. So. So I think that I think that yeah, that, that Jason Williams will now will certainly be seen as, as the progressive choice and um, I think Landon will will likely um, tout her experience, um, her time running the
1: office as, as kind of her strength. Yeah, I mean I think I, th- I I'd agree there. I, I think he's going to be seen as the as the you know more progressive person in the runoff. But I think in this, you know, in this primary that we had on uh, Tuesday. Uh, what what you may have seen was that the, the progressive the more progressive vote was kind of split between Williams and Hunter. Hunter yeah. was, Hunter was long seen as a uh, you know one of the more if not the most progressive judge on the bench at criminal district court. Um, he was, he was, he was definitely running to the left of, of Landrum, who was seen as the sort of moderate in the race. Um, you know, and uh, so I think I think that's, that's uh, a lot of what you're seeing here. And now what remains to be seen is if all of those Hunter votes or a, a substantial or enough of those Hunter votes will go to Williams in the runoff um, to give him a clear victory. And that's, you know, that's obviously not clear yet.
2: No, that's definitely true, and it's going to be kind of interesting to to see. Um, you know, Jason Williams also just has a big personality, and and is was probably more outspoken, partially because of his his circumstance on the city council, where his Hunter was on the bench. But um, it'll be interesting to see yeah, where those Hunter votes go, and and how people are feeling about Jason Williams. Um, also in light of of
1: his current legal troubles, which maybe we'll get into. Right. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, so so getting into that, um, you know, Jason, Jason Williams, um, I believe, has uh, has done some interviews on uh, TV this week where he's been saying that, um, you know, if he weren't currently under a federal indictment for tax fraud, he would have he would have come out of Tuesday as the clear winner. No, I don't know if that's true. He had at least two very strong challengers um, in Kiva Landrum and Arthur Arthur Hunter. Um, he may very well mean that, that one or, or both of them may have been more hesitant about running if he weren't under indictment. Um, but you know, with 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 these two two other candidates in the race, I you know, I I, I think a a runoff was, was always going to be inevitable you know, whether or not he was hundredth.
0: the other races, generally speaking, progressives didn't do well. Do you think that presages uh, what may happen in this runoff?
2: It's hard to say. I mean, there, so there was a, a slate of seven judges running for, for criminal district court on, on sort of a progressive platform um, called flip the bench. And two of them did wind up winning. Um, angel harris and nandy campbell um angel harris who defeated uh franz Zibelich, she was an incumbent and she was the first person to defeat an incumbent criminal district court judge since i think the early 70s though so, that was a pretty significant uh victory but like you said um some of the other races the chief public defender derwin bunton uh ran for judge and was defeated uh against a longtime prosecutor uh Steve Singer, who ran for magistrate judge and was promising to end money bail, uh, lost pretty handily to Juana Marine Lombard. So it's hard to say. Uh, that, you know, there were some some surprise progressive victories, and then and then some some not such not so good turnouts. And it'll it'll be hard to say. It's also hard to know. To what extent people are engaged in those races and and understand the candidates' positions, or are making sort of instinctual guesses when they when they get in the in the
1: booth? I think that's right. I mean, you know, there there were a lot of races on the ballot um, around the state and in Orleans Parish, and people have only only so much uh, you know time to 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 learn about these candidates, and uh, I think in a lot of cases people were getting a lot of mailers and uh with uh with you know sort with with sort of sample ballots on them and these um and these non flip the bench candidates were often endorsed by a lot of uh you know the sort of institutional um democratic party organizations in town so you know you're gonna have some of that you're gonna have a lot of people you know who just choose the First Democrat that appears at the top, Um, and in Orleans Parish, that just means choosing the first name that appears (laughs) on the top of of a race. So, yeah, I mean, I I think there's something to that. I think just one more point to be emphasized um, when we when we get to the to the DA's race, which is the you know the top the ballot race in the in Criminal District Court. We talk about candidates being more moderate and more progressive, and and um, you know that's that is an element here. But I think it, it just bears repeating that, um, you know, all of these candidates were running on, an, on a reform agenda in the DA's race. They were—it was—throughout it was, it, it through, the race, was, it was very much, to me at least, appeared to be a, 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 reputed, a repudiation of the policies of the Canizero administration. Leon Canizero, the current DA, is seen as a very aggressive prosecutor. Nick, do you think that's the correct read on this? Yeah, that's definitely accurate. Um,
2: I think that Kiva Landrum is is kind of doing her best to 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 keep her distance from Kana's arrow and, and not mention his name much, while still sort of touting her experience as a as a prosecutor and former DA. I think I think she's kind of walking a fine line there, but certainly certainly not an endorsement of his policies at all, um, and and sort more of more of a repudiation.
0: Okay. Um, do you want to talk at all, before we leave this one, Nick, about the legal troubles that Jason Williams is facing? Sure, yeah. I mean, just briefly, he has a 12 count
2: federal indictment for tax fraud that he's currently fighting. Um, so the status of the litigation right now is he's, he's trying to get the case tossed out for selective and vindictive prosecution. He's basically saying that the government has has targeted him because he's a public official and he's running for DA on this pro- progressive platform. So there was an evidentiary hearing, I believe two weeks ago, and um, there will probably be a ruling on that uh, in the coming days or weeks. It's it, I think it would be really difficult for him to get the case tossed out for these purposes. It's a really high bar. But so if, if that doesn't happen, then his trial is set for January, which would obviously be after the election um, and how that, how that will play out should he win or how it's going to affect people's people's votes um, obviously remains to be seen.
0: Okay, thanks, Nick. Of course, thank you. All right, Michael, civil district court race. Jennifer Medley unseated the incumbent, Chris Bruno. It was pretty ugly there at the end. Um, tell us what happened.
3: Yeah, uh, this was kind of a weird one, like so many 2020 stories. Every incumbent civil district court judge that that wanted to keep their seat was able to do it, um, except for in this race, um, Chris Bruno losing his seat, like you said, to the to the challenger Jennifer Medley. Not to take away from Medley's achievement here, but but the story leading up to the to the election has really been overshadowed um, by a a dispute, a long running dispute between the incumbent Chris Bruno. And um, Sidney Torres, a local entrepreneur, who who faced a a ruling against him um, in Bruno's court back in 2019, and Torres really threw his his you know financial and influential weight behind uh, the Medley campaign in a way that Bruno's campaign um, you know described as as like a, a revenge tactic. Um, basically, they, they accused Torres of of using Medley as as a pawn in his game to, to try and get even with Bruno um, because of this ruling in 2019. Obviously, um, that's something that Torres and the Medley campaign deny. Um, but Torres was the, the primary financial backer of the campaign. Um, uh, this was back in September, but the Times-Picayune had looked at um, uh, Medley's campaign contributions and, and found that Torres, his associates, his businesses, and his mother Combined, made up more than half of her campaign contributions. Um, we had also covered an instance in which um, the Bruno campaign had accused Medley and Torres of conspiring to um, circumvent um, financial uh, um, campaign contribution limits and disclosure laws. What happened in that situation is one of Torres's companies, STD. Uh, sorry, IV Capital. Gave Medley a personal one hundred thousand dollar loan um, using her using one of her properties as as a, a collateral. Um, Medley then um, donated one hundred thousand dollars to her own campaign. The Bruno campaign alleged that this was a um, pass through loan um, that that Torres's company um, would not have been able to lend this much money to the campaign, but that um, you know they, they found this kind of loophole that allowed them to do it. You know, there was another instance that that kind of got high profile, where the Medley campaign using using one of Torres's um, companies tried to air an ad um, that accused Bruno of being a quote deadbeat dad. Um, something wow. that the Bruno campaign obviously uh, pushed back on as well. So it, it became this this very messy race. But I think you know, looking at it from a bird's eye view, that the the question was always. Um, looking at the outsized role that Sidney Torres, an entrepreneur, was playing in this race. Um, And, you know, Torres, uh, you know, I I had a a pretty long conversation with him about, you know, the impetus for his involvement. And, 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 you know, basically what he says is that, you know, this was not a quest for revenge. He argued that Chris Bruno um, has been able to hold on to his position, um, not only, um, you know, his family uh, has a law firm, Bruno and Bruno, um, that you've probably seen advertisements for, and so they're obviously known within you know the legal community here. Um, the Torres campaign, you know, they allege that there's something unethical about you know all these donations that the Bruno campaign got from attorneys who have argued in his courtroom before and will have to argue in that courtroom presumably in the future. Mm. Um, so, so what Torres's argument was was yes. I'm playing a big role here, but in order to you know get past the the ingrained judicial um, you know these in, these ingrained judges who kind of have this cemented financial support from the legal community, you need someone like me who can really you know fight against that.
1: Beyond the hundred thousand dollar loan, beyond the money that um, was was donated to the Medley campaign by uh, people connected to um, to sydney torres he also reactivated we discussed this when we when we uh a, a few episodes ago when we talked about the hundred thousand dollar loans and i mentioned um that he also had a pack that he had yet to activate right. in this race he's <laughs> since activated it um and if you've you know if you watch the local news um at 10 o'clock as i do he was blanketing um you know the the local local uh, ad buys with, uh with, with uh, anti-Bruno ads from his pack, which is called the Voice of the People Pack. and it was, you know, various uh, various uh, uh, accusations against him that he had mistreated a, a rape victim, you know, in, that Bruno had mistreated a, a rape victim who was in his court. That he was a deadbeat dad, as 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 uh, as Michael mentioned. I believe two of these ads had to be pulled down under a court order. There was another one that I believe there was a, a, a cease and desist for using a song, you know, a pop song without a license. But nevertheless, before these court orders came in, he he bought a ton of ads. It, it aired, these all of these ads aired a lot, um, and I think uh, you know maybe three to one uh, voice of the people pack ads versus Chris and Bruno campaign ads, hmm. and, and you know maybe that was what were not necessarily making the connection, uh, or, or, or weren't necessarily offended by the fact that, that Sidney Torres were, was so involved in this, uh, and they were they were uh, paying more attention to what these uh, Voice of the People PAC ads were saying.
3: I want to point out again that that this really was the only in, in civil district court, the only successful challenger to an incumbent, and you know we should mention that there's no at least. I don't think that there's any other backdrop to this race it's not like bruno is in any other wider public you know controversies that would have influenced this race i mean it's a pretty standard civil district court you know one of those races that people would normally think of as pretty boring um it's hard to look at another factor outside of sydney torres's support to really explain why this was so much more successful than these other challengers um you know no one knows for sure i'm not sure i just personally don't really know what other factors would have, you know, um, kind of gone into play that that would have caused such widespread kind of opposition to Bruno. Um, Again, it's, it's a a fairly uncontroversial election when it, you know, compared to something like the district attorney or obviously the presidential race or or anything like that. So again, you know, the, the, the story here and I think why we've covered it um, is again, it, 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 there's a perspective here where one person over a personal vendetta decided that they were going to kind of uh, usurp a a sitting civil district court judge and with their, you know, influence and financial support looks like they were able to at least um, help nudge that in in,
1: in that direction. Hmm. Yeah, and it generated interest I can see right now. um, Among the, uh, so, you know, so just to give you an example, just to go through the numbers a bit, you know presidential uh, turnout in Orleans Parish was around 65% um, you know you're always gonna have a drop-off um, in the down ballot races people just don't mark any names um, but um, you know most of the so they uh, among the civil district court races the uh, Division F which was the Bruno medley race had uh had the the highest uh voter participation rate at 57 percent um so this this one definitely got people's attention
0: all right thank you michael
2: no
1: problem
0: you're listening to behind the lens i'm carolyn heldman my guests this week are michael isaac stein nick krastel marta Jusen, madeline arufo and lens editor charles maldonado Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom, dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. As an advocate for openness, we provide readers with the source documents used in our reporting, inviting them to check and challenge our work or to build on it through their own research. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Marta, there was a large field of people running for the Orleans Parish School Board. It's largely undecided still. What happened in that race?
4: Yes, we had 21 candidates uh, spread across the seven districts, um, school board districts that we have. And only two of those races were decided,
0: hmm.
4: so five of them will head to the runoff on December fifth. And one of them narrowly missed a win. Um, Leslie Ellison in District Four had forty-eight or forty-nine point six percent of the vote, and had she crossed that fifty percent threshold, she would have uh, been elected outright. Wow. What? Yeah. What was her final
1: percentage again, Marta?
4: At forty-nine point. Five eight percent is what I got. <laughs> wow! So she was she was close.
0: <laughs> so tell us about the two victors.
4: Yeah. So uh, incumbent John Brown won in New Orleans East, a um, longtime educator, and he won outright. And then in District Three, there was no incumbent running, and Olin Parker. Um, once the early vote finally came in, it came in a little later than the precinct votes. Um, he won pretty handily.
0: But other incumbents weren't able to prevail?
4: Right. The other three incumbents were not able to prevail. Um, And then one uh, additional board member who was an interim board member, um, she, Griselda Jackson, did not make her runoff.
0: Is there some sort of trend that you're seeing here because of the, the lack of results? Is that, do you think it's just a crowded field? Do you think it was, I mean, it's hard to extrapolate, but can you, give us a Um, sense.
4: I think the fact that the, I think the fact that incumbents made their runoffs means that their names are recognized. And then the fact that challengers or that the the fact that they weren't elected outright and that challengers are going to face them in the runoff means that, uh, you know, people are looking for change. There was a similar movement, although not quite as organized as flip the bench. There's a group called erase the board and a few other groups that are looking to see change on the school board. Um, and I think that that's why we're seeing so many runoffs.
1: Yeah, and erase the board started to become a major factor um, maybe last year or so. They 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 just they they, they kind of got organized, um, sending people you know getting people to show up at school board meetings um, and deliver public comments on, on various various issues. Uh, and uh, they they really didn't make much of an appearance in this election right up until the very end um where they 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 kind of had a a social media campaign with a slate of candidates and everything these races have lower turnout than most of the rest rest of the races we'll probably see some some additional interest in this runoff um even even though the the presidential race is over uh because of this da race but uh you know not sure how that's going to filter down to to the school board races
4: right Okay. I think it will be really interesting to watch for the school board races because we've already seen a few advocacy groups throw in hundreds of thousands of dollars for uh, certain candidates. So it'll it'll be interesting to see if that you know ramps up a dollar if they just kind of level off and aren't so interested anymore.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Marta. Thank you, Madeline. Let's uh, dig into this. Really interesting story you wrote about this week, Mayor Cantrell signed an agreement extending a 100 year old trust, and along with it, a costly revenue split in perpetuity. On top of leaving money on the table right now, there are all kinds of legal problems with this agreement. Let's back up just a little bit and explain what is the Wisner Trust.
5: So, um, in 1914, Edward Wisner put 50,000 acres of land into a trust. Um, he had moved down to new Orleans from Michigan. And the purpose of this was originally to benefit the city of new Orleans. Um, the first, the original four beneficiaries were the city of new Orleans, Tulane university, the Salvation Army, army and charity hospital. And then he died a year after entrusting this property. And shortly thereafter, um, his wife and daughters sued the trust, claiming that it had robbed them of their community property, um, and they were added as a fifth group of beneficiaries.
0: Years later, though. Took yeah, a while.
5: That was about 10 years, um, if not more, after Wisner had died.
0: Okay.
1: It's when we get into the 40s and 50s that we really start to see the importance of of this land and why why it becomes a major issue for the city um which is that uh you know it oil oil first of all oil is discovered on the land right um sometime in the mid 50s i believe like 1954 uh, um and several years after that uh port uh Fouchon is is built on a portion of this uh, uh, on a portion of this land and uh you know for those not familiar that is a major, major oil and gas port for the Gulf. Uh, it handles, I, something like you know, according to its own materials, it handles uh, something like ninety percent of the uh, of the you know the offshore uh, Gulf oil activity.
0: So you have uh, renters on that land that are paying into this trust.
1: Yes, and it's and and they're paying uh, they're paying millions of dollars a year.
0: Right. Okay. In 2014 the land that the trust was supposed to expire and revert complete authority over all this land to the city of New Orleans.
5: Yes, it was supposed to terminate after it's 100 year term was up Um, the Landry administration actually went to court to ensure that it would terminate in 2014. However, um, when that date came around in August 2014, um, the beneficiaries got together and signed various agreements to sort of continue the operational structure of the trust for uh, months at a time, and there were many of these agreements. And so this is kind of what took us up to um, March or, or, you know, present day, um, just extending it and extending it. Um, until this March 2020 agreement, where they finally agreed to extend it in perpetuity. However, that may not exactly be legally possible for a number of reasons.
0: Well, and hold on, because we need to back up just a second to establish, with those who haven't read the story, that the mayor of New Orleans was given, at the very onset of this agreement, the um executor power or i'm not sure if that's the right term right yeah
5: the mayor was actually set out as the trustee by virtue of their office okay Uh, so uh whoever the mayor of new orleans has been has been the trustee whose role is to administer the trust uh in accordance with the original settlers intentions with edward wisner's intentions um, and the mayor signed on to this 2020 agreement as both a representative for the city of New Orleans um, and as the trustee
0: and forever and, and a day giving up the the termination rights really saying that forever all the heirs and this agreement can stand as it stands
5: yes and the sort of issue with that is, Um, charitable trusts can be perpetual, um, that the law has kind of created this carve out for charitable trusts that says, you know, we're okay if, if this continues forever, because it's providing some benefit to society to, you know, in this case, the various good institutions like Tulane and like the city. Um, but perpetuity is not an option for, private trusts and since the Wisner heirs and their attorneys heirs are private individuals who were added um, and, and benefit from this trust back in the um, 30s. It's now a mixed trust since then, so it's mixed in the sense that you have both private and charitable individuals and the, the private individuals are governed differently. Uh, in a different way um, than the charitable indi- individuals are. Um, and so that's kind of the, the issue with this agreement is that it, it probably isn't legally possible, according to legal experts who talk to, to continue this thing in perpetuity for the
1: private heirs. On top of that, there's also an, a, a much less complex legal issue with this, which is that, in city law, in order to modify a trust that the city is a party to, um, the 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 mayor has to take the modification agreement before the city council, and that never happened in this case. Um, it, it the mayor the mayor unilaterally made this decision, and, and uh, you know, obvi- and you know, in the past, I believe these ex- these short term extension agreements, which were basically just keeping the status quo. For three months at a time, those were signed, I believe, without council approval. But to change to change something from a short-term term extension, a three-month extension, or whatever of the status quo to a to uh, uh, a a uh, an extension into perpetuity, uh, I think it's it would be hard to argue that that's not a modification.
0: Right. Okay. And
5: the agreement itself is entitled. A modification agreement, so the cost of that. Yeah.
0: Okay, and and to to put this in perspective, we're talking about between three and nine million dollars a year proceeds from the from this land.
5: Yes. So, so as it stands, I think that the city is receiving. Um, I need to actually need to check the numbers on that. Um, but the city essentially stands to double its revenue stream, if not a little bit more than double it if the other beneficiaries um sort of leave the scene as they were expected to do in 2014
0: right
1: yeah yeah i mean so the breakdown is this you know the thing that the whole thing generates about th- as you said three to nine million dollars and it tends i think the average is somewhere around six or seven million dollars a year um of those proceeds the city gets about 35 percent the other uh the the charitable beneficiaries uh each they get uh between two and 12 percent of those proceeds and the heirs uh the wisner heirs get the largest chunk at 40 percent right um so if you take if you if you take the take the heirs out um in you know even if you did leave the, the the charitable institutions in uh the city the city would be doubling its take you know which would be several million dollars a year which um at this, you know, at, at this moment is, is an awful lot of money, uh, that, that the is leaving on the table or seems to be.
5: Yeah. So between 2015 and 2019, the money that went to the beneficiaries other than the city was about $21 million.
1: And of that, I think the heirs, the, uh, Wisner heirs got something like 12 million.
4: Yeah.
0: And this all happens at the time when we're looking at a hundred fifty million dollar shortfall. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, this you know. So the city. So you know, again, to, let's define the term. Can we talk about this hundred fifty million dollar shortfall? That is a, a shortfall in recurring revenue. So that's that's a shortfall. You know, that's a shortfall in in the you know sort of normal tax and fee revenue that the city collects. The city was able to make up most of that this year with one time money. Primarily coming from two sources: uh, the proceeds of a lawsuit against uh, Harris Casino and uh, CARES Act money. That still left a $40 million hole. The city, you know, the city has dealt with that in various ways. Uh, sort of the most notable recent one has been a citywide furlough, one day per pay period for you know 4,000 plus city employees. That, if I remember correctly, was was going to save the city about $6 million by the end of the year. $6 million in a, in a good year for the, Wisner, um, for the Wisner Trust would be about what the other entities would would be getting, you know, rather than the city. So, and then next year, you know, we're, we are dealing with a $100 million cut to the city, a proposed cut under the mayor's proposed budget to the city's general fund, which, you know, represents, general fund is the money that's kind of generated locally and the city has direct control over it and it accounts for most of the budgets of most departments. The city's budget also uh, eliminates something something like 300 employees, 300 positions, and Mayor Cantrell uh, is, is saying that she expects uh, employee furloughs to continue in some form into next year. And this is all, of course, due to the coronavirus. So, you know, whereas 3 to $6 million a year is sort of, you, seems a little small in terms of the overall city budget, you know, $7 million a year would represent about 1% of the city's general fund budget. Right. Um, A few million dollars does make a a big difference in terms of whether or not, you know, certain positions are going to be cut, um, whether or not employees have to be furloughed, whether or not services have to be cut in certain certain departments. So this kind of money is money that the city could probably use.
0: Is there any insight into why the mayor would have signed this agreement?
1: We have no idea what the motivation was here. No one who was in any position to know why they signed this agreement would talk to us. Not anyone. You know, we contacted the 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 entity with the 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 biggest stake uh, in this is the heirs. Uh, We tried to reach out to a couple of them to get some 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 more insight into this. They didn't want to talk to us, or they didn't answer our calls. Uh, the city attorney's office didn't want to talk to us. The mayor's office didn't want to talk to us. So we don't know.
4: I do kind of think that if, if not now, when question is <laughs> interesting. I mean, you know.
0: How so? What would, do you mean?
4: At one other point, would you be able to say there's a pandemic and we have a financial shortage? Um, maybe we shouldn't get using this money. <laughs>
2: At the same time, it's interesting that the lander administration sued to end the agreement and then continued to extend it. And, and why would two rural administrations both Well, be? I
5: mean, extending it for the period of time when it's winding yeah. down is reasonable, right? Because, you know, the land is there's still various um, operations taking place on the land, and normally it does take a few years to wind down a kind of trust. That's this big, but six years is pretty unusual from, like, what the lawyers that I talked to had to say about it.
2: Is there, do you know if there's any evidence that it was actually winding down?
5: Um, no, that's the interesting thing is that, um, you know, in, in accordance with the law, it's, it was supposed to wind down uh, and it ended up just winding back up again and winding but, up to perpetuity.
1: And to get to the question about about Landrew uh, and the lawsuit back in 2012 through 2014, uh, the interesting thing about the, the termination part of the lawsuit is if you look at the legal history of this uh, lawsuit, it was actually two separate lawsuits that were, console- or, you know, two separate legal actions that were later consolidated. Landrew, he went to court. Initially, all he was trying to clarify was whether or not he could use this money to dole out grants uh, to various local charitable organizations as he saw fit without going to the Wisner Advisory Committee. The heirs actually kind of forced the issue on whether or not it should terminate. They filed a later action about a month after Landry did and they brought up the issue of, of whether or not the the, uh, the the trust should be considered a perpetual trust or not. And then they, they, so they kind of forced the judges to decide on that and the judges ended up deciding with the city. Are people making the case at all that the 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 short-term extensions were
2: were not legally valid that that because the agreement was supposed to have terminated that the that the advisory committee no longer had standing to to make those determinations that it was that it would be extended
5: um i think that the extensions are, are probably legally above board for a reasonable time usually that's kind of how these types of legal issues work is you're given a reasonable time to wind down the trust uh it's it's unclear i think intentionally how long that period is supposed to last because of how different different trusts could be and how it could take longer for some of them to wind down than others depending on how big they are but the, the main point is that it's supposed to actually wind down eventually, and that didn't happen here. So I think the main thing that we're questioning the legal val- validity of is this 2020 agreement that claims to continue it forever. That's sort of the, the thing that stands out as particularly legally unusual, um, and it reads that way as well.
0: Madeline the city council does have recourse to challenge this decision
5: so as I understand it uh yeah the city council would have standing to sue the mayor um to invalidate this agreement that
0: would be the only way to do that th- sorry that's the only way that, to, to sue the um, mayor
5: that's I would say probably the most likely way there is something else under the law which is taxpayer standing, which is a much more legally complicated argument um, and probably less likely to happen here. Uh, It's not my area of expertise, so I can't speak to that very much, but um, I think, yeah, that would be the, the most likely thing if we see any type of litigation would have to come from the city council, I think.
0: Do you have any sense if there will be
5: no. Um, Council Member Palmer, you know, I think was intentionally cautious about this and was like, I need to read more into it and figure out what our argument would be. Um, she didn't uh, commit to anything um, in my interview with her. Uh, and you know, no one else wanted to talk to us about it. So it's kind of hard to gauge what they're thinking about doing. But I do think that it is something that the public should keep an eye on here because um, it's a lot of it's a lot of money at stake and you know the original grant was intended to benefit the city and and the corpus of the trust was supposed to go to the city and that was edward wisner's original intentions the entire purpose of setting up a trust is to carry out the intentions of the settler um, and that that isn't happening because the beneficiaries have got together and signed this agreement. But the, thing, the interesting thing is under the law, you know, what the beneficiaries want to happen is not really relevant in, in the case of a trust. It's supposed to be what, you know, the original settler of the trust wanted to happen. So it's, it's an interesting issue, you know, that's definitely worth keeping an eye
0: on. Especially today in this context. Yeah. Well, great job. Thank you so much for that report. Thanks. All right, everybody, we did it. Thank you all. Have a great week.
2: Thank well, you. Thank you. Bye. Good Bye-bye.
0: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' 1st nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusin, Madeline Arufo, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.